across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. It is the start of a scorching week, ladies and gentlemen, where Britain is set to be hotter than the Bahamas, or so we're told. Surely more opportunity for further flouting of the lockdown rules, which now seem barely in place at all. All weekend there were marches up and down the country, people meandered through our cities and towns, carrying drinks and food and placards and it all seemed to all intents and purposes that no one is staying in anymore. Tragically, the weekend also saw the murders of three men in a park in Reading after a Libyan immigrant stabbed them to death in a frenzied attack just 16 days after being released from prison. Now, Kari Sadala is an asylum seeker who was known to MI5 because of a stated desire to go and fight in Syria, but who was nevertheless granted permission to live here and kill here by the Home Office. He has been arrested under the Terrorism Act and he will face trial, but there will be no such reprieve for his victims, including teacher James Furlong, uh, generously described as one of the greatest guys uh, that ever taught children, and American expat Joe Ritchie Bennett. Isn't it great? You come to live and work in the United Kingdom from America, Philadelphia, where he originally came from, uh, and you get murdered uh, by a Libyan immigrant. And the question must be asked, how many more times can we allow this to happen? We'll be talking to Dr. Riki Bassan about the mountain that our security services must climb to keep on top of these ghastly terrorists who hate our country, but are yet continually invited to come and live here. We are told Sadala had mental health problems. We also know he attacked a police officer and was jailed for a series of violent assaults. The whole system is clearly not fit for purpose. Pretty Patel will spend today talking about the anniversary of the Windrush um, situation happening, but what she will not do is tell us about all of the other people who have come here from countries where terrorism uh, is flouted openly, and yet... We don't know who any of these people are. 0344 499 1000. Coming up this morning, we will be asking John Rental, Chief Political Commentator at The Independent, just what we can expect from Boris Johnson this week after some heavy hints over the weekend that the one-metre rule is about to be introduced and we're all going to be going to the restaurants and bars of this country very shortly. Peter Hitchens also joins us with his latest take on the weekend at March in Oxford, which he said was less intimidating uh, than being chased around by hamsters. And the fact that Cecil Rhodes' statue may well end up being replaced by one of a black student who was given a Rhodes Scholarship in 1907. Funny old world, isn't it? 0344 499 1000. We're also talking pubs, hot weather and why the sky is blue. It's all happening right here on the Independent Republic of Mike Graham and you're listening to it on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, if you were out and about on the streets of Britain this weekend, you might be forgiven for thinking that the lockdown was well and truly over. Some people are booking haircuts. Some people are drinking pretty much around the clock in a park opposite a pub, which is selling them a beer. Some people uh, are going to the beach. Some people uh, are indeed travelling as far and wide uh, across the country as they wish. So the question really is, um, what is going on? In Downing Street, how is it working? We saw a story at the weekend in the Sunday Times that Boris Johnson and the Downing Street crew are sort of being guided more by data and public opinion than they are uh, by the science nowadays. But let's find out from John Rental, uh, Chief Political Commentator at The Independent, precisely what he makes of it all. John, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. I mean, it was interesting, the piece in the Sunday Times, but but sort of not uh, what I would describe as a killer sort of piece of journalism in a sense, because at the end of the day, uh, they said, well, everybody's been watching data for a very, very long time. And yes, government is done partially that way, but partially by other means as well. What did you make of it all? 
Well, I mean, uh, if uh, number 10 is following opinion polls extremely closely, then uh, it's uh, it's not doing a very good job, is it? Because uh, uh, it was very clear that uh, the British public were overwhelmingly of the view that uh, Dominic Cummings should, uh, should not be working there any longer. And Boris Johnson decided to ignore that bit because uh, presumably he didn't want to to hear it. He ignored uh, public opinion on uh, free school meals until uh, Marcus Rashfield uh, forced him to change his mind. Rashford. Uh, don't, uh, don't, don't, don't do a Matt Hancock on us, for heaven's sake. <laughs> Rashford. Rashford. <laughs> him. Uh, footballer. Association footballer, Your Honour. Yes. I think. Um, anyway, so they're not, they're not that good at public opinion in, in, in number 10. Uh, and actually, public opinion is, uh, is opposed to uh, reducing the two-metre rule, but they're going to go ahead with it because, uh, and, and quite rightly in my view, uh, because I think the economy is more important than, uh, than taking an ultra-precautionary view uh, of social distancing. But I think you've just very adequately um, kind of illustrated the problem with following public opinion, and that is it depends who you ask, and it depends which well, public opinion poll you look well, at. I mean, I saw one uh, that was published in The National over the weekend in which they apparently claimed that more and more people than ever want independence for Scotland. But once you started reading through the actual poll and the fact that they'd removed uh, the don't knows, the fact that they'd done, uh, they'd moved some other numbers around and they'd come up with this particular conclusion because it was what suited them and it was the conclusion they wanted, you can pretty much do whatever you want with it. Well, I'm not sure that's fair. I do think uh, I do think the situation oh, in Scotland is extremely worrying. I think uh, I think support for independence is increasing uh, and ought to be diminished. But uh, it's very very difficult to see how uh, how those of us who support the United Kingdom uh, can can reverse that tide. Uh, you know, Nicola Sturgeon is a politician um, who is not to be underestimated, or do I mean? overestimated. Well, I think I think you over I think the problem with people who don't understand Scotland terribly well, and I have to say, John, having worked up there in the political system for quite some years and still in touch with many of them, I have to say that I think you're wrong. Uh, outside of Scotland, the, the impression is that Nicola Sturgeon is a genius. Inside of Scotland, that is not at all the impression that she's given. She's very popular up there, No, Mike. she's you not. Can't... Actually, no, John, she's not. And if she had a referendum tomorrow, she would lose it, and that's why she's not pushing for it, because she knows that. Well, I hope you're right. But I don't think you are. <laughs> yeah, well, you can disagree with me if you like, but uh, I've never been wrong yet on this show, uh, and you have. So uh, your record stands for itself. But let's talk about Boris Johnson this week, because with each coming week, you know, he seems to face a fresh challenge. We saw at the weekend that there's lots of people saying this U-turning business has to stop because apart from anything else, what it does is create a kind of sense of confusion amongst Tory MPs who are not sure what the party stands for anymore. Um, and, and it looks at the moment as though if you stand up to it for long enough and ask something to be done for long enough, it eventually gets done. No, I think that's nonsense. I mean, the, the only problem with U-turns is not doing them quickly enough. I mean, that... Uh... That free school meals uh, business, the vouchers for for, for food over the summer, uh, sh- should have been he, he should have given in straight away because it was why? obvious which way opinion was going on there. Well, oh, why should it? It's because it's the right thing to well, do. No, Mike. no, you see, that's the problem. Politics now has become people shouting at each other about what is the right thing to do. You know, you can't just keep giving away free stuff to people who say that they can't afford something because where does that end? Well, you well you can for the moment, actually. Uh, I mean, I'm not sure that. You know, I mean, given the billions and billions that are being spent on the furlough scheme to yeah. pay people, to, uh, I think I think actually paying to provide 
provide uh, deprived children with uh, with food over the summer i think is a perfectly reasonable thing thing to do uh, I mean, but what about what, to, so when does it end do we give do we give it every summer now well, mm, well yeah i mean that is one that's why he resisted doing it because it sets a precedent well exactly so when you say it's the right thing to do that is a judgment that you have made and you have said um by because of what you believe in that's perfectly fine and perfectly dandy and you're more more than entitled to have that view but it, you know the right oh. thing to do is a very worrying phrase for me because that's how we got into all this trouble in the first place because the right thing to do for you may not be the right thing to do for everyone well, you're you're right. I'm 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 picking and choosing those bits of public opinion that I agree with. Yes. Uh, when uh, when when the public opinion supports uh, you know the free school meals vouchers, then uh, then that's that's fine. But when public opinion uh, wants to wants to stick to the two meter social distancing rule, I think it's wrong. Yeah. Uh, and I and I'm praising praising the prime minister for going against it. But I mean, I, I do think it is slightly different because I think he's leading public opinion uh, on the response to the coronavirus. I think he's leading public opinion towards. Uh, towards returning the economy to normal, and I think a one meter rule is a much more sensible. Uh, yes, sensible. Absolutely. And and you and I, and you and I have found at uh, this moment in time, thirteen minutes past ten, we've found our first point of agreement, which is ideal for me because that's what we like to find uh, is is consensus <laughs> politics, John. After all, but here's the thing: I mean, all businesses, all pub owners, all restaurant owners that I know have said we can make money at one meter. We can't make it at two. Schools can now go back surely to to, to work before uh, the summer holidays uh, if one meter rule is put into place. Yes, absolutely. And I think that's that's more important. I mean, I think I think pubs and restaurants are important. I mean, I don't think they're they're, they're sort of some kind of uh, frivolous uh, frippery. No, uh, because, because getting the economy going is is people's jobs and livelihoods. And I think that's very important. But I do think schools are even more important in the in the in the short term. And I think you're absolutely right. I think I think it's absolutely vital that we get children back into school before the summer holidays start. And even during the summer holidays, I think uh, I think schools should be should be open for people who who want to send their children to them. And I think I think uh, the term should be starting in in August rather than September. Um, and generally, we should be doing as much as we can to uh, help children catch up. And I think the one meter rule is is absolutely key to that. I mean, I'm not saying that you should you should change the the social distancing rule because you want to get people back to school and you want to get the economy going. I mean, the one, the two meter rule is far too cautious anyway, and and has very little science behind it. Uh, and I think the one meter rule is sensible in any case. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. And the funny thing about the way that the, the government has been operating uh, is that, you know, I've been a very staunch supporter of Boris Johnson. Um, and at the beginning of this lockdown, which in a way was the more difficult part of governing, because they had to make some very tough decisions, which they knew would be very damaging to the economy, but yet they made them. It seems to me that as we reach this part, which is a little bit easier in a way uh, to navigate out of, this is the bit that they're kind of being a bit too hesitant on. Yes, I, I, com I completely agree. And I think actually uh, the, the lockdown was too severe and uh, too strict in the first place. I think the initial measures uh, that were taken a week before the actual statutory lockdown came in were quite enough. I think it was enough to say to people, work at home if you can, uh, avoid inessential travel. Uh, but that all that stuff about stay at home and, um, and passing laws to, to stop people 
uh, meeting each other, I thought was was going too far and was unnecessary. Uh, yeah, but I mean, as, quite... they, as they've now said, John, even they were quite surprised at how people took to it. I don't think they expected yeah. everyone to do what they were told. And if you remember yeah. back to those days, I mean, I, I have this uh, argument with Peter Hitchens on a regular basis now that he thinks it was unnecessary, uh, that it was overprotective. But if you remember at the time, people were genuinely frightened. People were scared. They didn't know yeah. what was around the corner. They didn't know if they got into a taxi with somebody that they might not catch it. And I, so I, I give them credit for that. Yeah, well, but I think the government panicked and I think the government overreacted. Um, I mean, it, it, it feels slightly strange to say, but I think I agree with Peter Hitchens on, uh, uh, you know, up, up to a point on that. And I think that made it, that has made it much more difficult now to start to reverse out of the, uh, the, the, the cul-de-sac. Because I think, you know, because people were frightened and because the government encouraged people to be frightened, it's now very difficult to get them to, to go back to normal life. I mean... You know, I mean, I, I sometimes hire, hire Boris bikes uh, to, to, to go around uh, London. And, mm. you know, there are people who say, that, you know, you've got to wipe the seat and, and sort of disinfect the, the handlebars before you use them. Uh, is extraordinary because, you know, the, the chances of catching this thing out in, out in the open, open air are, seem, to, seem to me to be remote. Mm. And uh, people are completely fearful of this, this mysterious, you know, what uh, Boris Johnson called the, the invisible yes. mugger. But I think the problem as well, John, is that because there's such a difference in the way that it seems to affect different people, that also causes a problem. I and mean, I think if you knew, for example, for sure, that if you did get it, the worst that would happen is you might have to spend a week in bed suffering from symptoms of the flu, right? You would probably feel very comfortable about doing almost anything. And so would I. Yeah. However, because we've seen examples of people um, who have actually become not just very, very ill, but I know there's not many of them uh, who didn't have any underlying health problems. But, you know, people have become, and Boris Johnson himself, close to death as a result. And I think that's partly why people are still a little bit reluctant to be too cavalier. Yeah, well, that's true. I mean, I mean, part part of my reason for being fairly relaxed about it at the start was that my prime minister was telling me that, uh, you know, for most people, it was a mild illness. And then, yeah. you know, next, he was in the in intensive care unit. Right. So yes, I mean obviously people do have to be careful. I'm not saying uh, I'm not saying uh, anything other than that. But I think uh, that there has been an overreaction, and it's very difficult to to get that back to some kind of, you know, obviously we're not going back to normal, you know, pre-COVID life. But you know, we should be, be we should be able to to run the economy uh, at at a reasonable yes. level. Well, um, I, well listen, I, I saw some pictures over the weekend, and I'm terribly, it's going to sound terribly London-centric now, but pictures from Notting Hill, Battersea, Borough Market, all sorts of areas of London, Hackney, Clapham Common, you know, rammed. You I mean, you would think that it was just a normal Saturday or a normal Sunday uh, in June. Well, yeah, I mean, the, I'm, I'm a bit suspicious of some of those pictures because you could do things with long lenses that make people look as if they're much closer to each other than they are. I mean, actually, most of the people I see in parks are still observing um the two meter distance and uh you know yeah but there's an awful the... yeah but there's an awful lot of them though is what i'm saying yeah but that's fine you know that's as long as they're observing the yes the, the, no listen i'm the, not I'm, I'm, my point is simply that very many people now would appear to think that there's absolutely no lockdown in place whatsoever well the, yeah but the more the more the better in my, in, my, in my view because i think we've got to get back to some kind of uh, normal life and i think the I mean, you know, where we need to really move is is to get to, is to get children back into school yeah. and to get people back to work. I mean, it's no use just paying people to stay at home doing nothing. No, exactly right. But there are obviously some people who quite like staying at home and doing nothing and getting paid <laughs> well, for it. You know, notwithstanding the fact that they should be in schools teaching. 
No, I'm sorry, I'm not just having a go at them, but the teachers seem to be particularly reluctant to go back, uh, particularly if they belong to a left-wing union. Well, I'm not sure if that's fair. I mean, you know, I'm, not, I'm the, not here to be fair, John. You know, all the individual <laughs> teachers are, are very, very dedicated and uh, keen to do what you know what what they can to to help their their students. So, you know, I think I, you know, I, the, I mean, unions are, are are there in order to 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 create problems about the safety, health and safety. I mean, that is their job, and that's that's right and proper, actually. Uh, but I think individual teachers are are dedicated, and the government ought to make it easier for them to well, um, maybe to actually get, maybe get their uh, your friend and mine, Sir Keir Starmer, could make it slightly easier for them by insisting that they go back rather than refusing five times to answer a question uh, about whether it's safe yeah. to go back to school in Prime Minister's questions. Another another point on which we absolutely agree, Mike. Yes, there's nothing like agreement, is there? It makes me feel warm and fuzzy all at the same time. <laughs> um, what do you think is likely to happen though if? Boris continues to run the government in the way that he is running it. Do you buy into this um, question of um, backbenchers, particularly sort of um, uh, ERG backbenchers, 1922 committee backbenchers saying, you know, this is not working anymore for us? No, I don't. I mean, that's what backbenchers always say. I mean, you know, Tory MPs and well, Labour MPs, when it was a Labour government, they always complain that they don't hear enough from number 10, that number 10's a bunker, that the Prime Minister's not listening, doesn't come and talk to them in the tea room often enough. Um, I, I, it's worth the moment because of social distancing and the fact that you know so many, uh, so many of these things are now done by Zoom meetings rather than uh, meetings in person. You can't sort of just wander about the House of Commons uh, and bump into people and have a have a ch- private chat as, as easily as you could. Um, so it, it, you know it's worse in that respect. But it was ever thus. I mean, MPs always grumble about Number Ten not uh, not talking to them enough. So if you're in number 10 right now and you are the Prime Minister, you're feeling reasonably unassailable then? No, not at all. The Prime Ministers never feel like that, Mike. I mean, they always feel as if they're about to be chucked out. I mean, it was extraordinary. I remember, t- you know, Tony Blair, when he had a majority of you know, 160 mm. uh, on. I, mean, I mean, obviously he was worried about what Gordon Brown was, was, was up to and whether he was going to come for him. Um, you know, Prime Ministers never feel secure. I mean, they always think they're about to lose their their job and I'm sure Boris Johnson's no different but I would imagine that Dominic Cummings takes a fairly dismissive uh, view of uh, of Tory discontent on the on the back benches um and I think you know although he, although he's broadly right to do so I think um I think they do need to worry because you know although you know Tory back benches always grumble um you know number 10 is not handling things well at the moment and really needs to get its act together. Yes, I think that's probably something we could also agree on, John, as we finish up uh, this great interview. Thank you very much indeed. John Rental, Chief Political Commentator at The Independent. Very sensible man. Very even-handed as well. Lucky to see uh, that he agrees with me about more than he disagrees with me about. But there is a problem here, and I'm not going to dwell on it, because it's a hard job that Boris Johnson's got. But he has done the hard bit very well. I say that the part when we locked down was the difficult bit. That was when the tough decisions had to be made. These decisions now are not so tough. However, uh, there will no doubt be quite an amount of alarm in Downing Street today uh, as they look at Germany and see that the R rate for Germany has jumped up from one point something to nearly three. Now, that means that for every one person that's infected with coronavirus, they infect three more, which is pretty bad news if that's a second spike. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. 
Let's talk now, though, to Elizabeth Schumacher, journalist for Deutsche Welle uh, in Germany, because uh, we've seen that Germany's R rate has jumped from 1.79 to 2.88 in one day. Uh, concerns that the country could see a second wave of COVID-19, that I'm told, uh, are probably not likely to be the case because these are isolated incidents. Let's find out what it's all about. Elizabeth, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Hello. Good morning. Yeah, good morning. There we are. Thank you very much indeed <laughs> for joining us. Um, is, is it right to say that this R rate has jumped because of two specific instances? Um, there have been several minor to major outbreaks over the weekend and over the past week. The most notable, as you said, in the slaughterhouse in Western Germany. There's also been uh, one in a large block of flats in the center of the country and one in Berlin as well. OK. And as far as the R rate is concerned, I was quite surprised to see that it was already at 1.79. Um, and then it jumped from that to 2.88, because obviously in this country, we're told that unless it's below one, we can't really lift any of the restrictions. Yeah, that's I mean, that's the conventional wisdom that it has to be below one if you want to have any hope of eliminating the pandemic um, from the country. So it was at 1.79 over the weekend because this incident with the slaughterhouse has been ongoing for about a week. So Mm. that started earlier. Okay, and so this is purely and simply around these areas. So so there's quarantine presumably in place where these specific outbreaks are, but no extra lockdown. No, which was surprising to a lot of people, because when the federal government, when Merkel announced the rollback of our initial lockdown, she said, if the R rate jumps um, above 1.5 for any particular area, it will be up to local municipal and regional leaders to implement a new lockdown. And over the weekend here in the state of North Rhine-Westphalia, where the slaughterhouse is, we all thought we might be seeing a new lockdown, but um, our governor decided against it. Okay. And so what does the quarantine do exactly? Does it ensure that the people who work at the slaughterhouse, stay indoors for, for 14 days? Yeah, so the people who work at the slaughterhouse mostly live in um, very cramped communal housing set up by the firm, which is part of the reason why it spread so quickly. Mm. And they are, the whole complex is now behind a gate. They're being brought food and they're not allowed to leave um, for the next 14 days. Oh, okay, so that's relatively easy to, 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 to sort out, I suppose. Less easy would be, other outbreaks perhaps where people live in a variety of different dwellings yeah they're also the um the large block of flats in both Göttingen in the middle of the country and in berlin they've also been placed behind fences they've also been quarantined and there you see a little bit more unrest because obviously these people are not allowed to leave their homes um and there was an incident over the weekend where some local residents started to throw bottles at the police and so now if they test negative twice they're allowed to leave their home okay and as far as the um the the death rates are in in germany germany's generally seen as one of the more successful countries in europe and in the world in fact uh, having dealt with this uh, better than perhaps some other countries what's the view in germany about that So the view in Germany is that because um, there are so many ICU beds, there's about, we have the most per capita in Western Europe. um, And because there hasn't been an overwhelming amount of people with very severe symptoms, um, people feel as though Germany has been able to handle it fairly well. Yes, okay. Um, And going forward, as far as coming out of it is concerned, I'm assuming that you are in pretty good shape now. You can go to restaurants, you can go to bars. Can you go to gyms yet? Uh, yeah, you can go to you can go to gyms. Basically, I mean, almost everything. There are certain new restrictions. Obviously, when you go to a restaurant, you have to write down all of your information in case they find out that someone's infected who's also visited the restaurant, so they could call you. Um, Germany's rolled out a tracing app 
so that if you are near someone, perhaps in the subway or in a store who has the virus, they will contact you so you can get tested. Um, the only thing that's still banned is pretty much large gatherings and um, some schools. Yes. Well, I'm interested to hear what you say about the tracing app because we've had trouble uh, getting a tracing app in this country that works terribly well. We've had Matt Hancock, the health uh, secretary, say that they've they've got bits of their tracing app which work, and then they've gone into league with Google and and um, uh, and Apple as well to try and find something that actually works for everybody. What are they using in Germany for that? So the German app was developed um, by the government and by the Robert Koch Institute, which is our center for disease control. Right. And co compared to other countries in Europe, I think Germans are much more confident um, about the efficacy of the app, as well as the data privacy, because that is a huge concern in Germany. Um, and from everything that the you know tech uh, reporters say, it looks like it's much better than perhaps the app in France. Mm for protecting people's data. So people feel fairly confident about it. Um, I think about 10 million people have downloaded it. But of course, you need at least, I think, 30 million people to download it to be for it to be completely effective in tracing everyone who might come in contact um, during the chain of infection. Yes. I mean, I'm surprised that we don't just use the German one by the sounds of it then, Elizabeth. Thank you very much indeed. <laughs> we'll maybe put a word into the, uh, uh, to the government to see if they can borrow your app. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk radio. And now time to say a very good morning to Mr. Peter Hitchens. Peter, welcome back. Very good morning to you. Morning. Thank you very much for being here. I have to say, um, one of the things that is nice about Twitter, and there are not many things that are nice about it, uh, were, was the kind of setting to music of your meandering through, because it did look like a sort of a very casual walk through Oxford, being followed by this crowd. Well, I have to walk casually at my age. I, mean, I, I, I can, when cowardice gets a grip, I can go quite fast, but um, but that's my sort of normal pace. Yes, well, you did explain that you have been in some rather dangerous situations to wit, um, I think Lithuania was one, um, and, yeah. and, and East Germany was another. Tell us about those. Well, always either lying on the ground or running away. Mm. Um, don't get me wrong, I'm not one of these war junkie um War junkie people, mm. uh, absolutely not a chance of that. Uh, but uh, no, I um, I was in Lithuania in January 1991, an event almost nobody remembers because it coincided uh, with a major offensive in the first Gulf War. Yeah. But the Lithuanians were trying to get their independence, and the Soviet Union at that time was trying to stop them, and they got quite violent. Yeah. And a particular night, they attacked the television station, mm. and. Uh, I remember quite well lying on the ground, actually face upwards in the dirty snow, saying to the Lithuanians around me, look, the best thing to do under these circumstances is to lie down. They said, we're not lying down. We've been lying down for 60 years. Yeah. We're not doing it anymore. Well, this is it. Uh, so that, but they, it, 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 was, it was quite frightening. In the East Berlin, there was some demonstration on the Schönhausdreilei before the fall of the wall. And the people's police uh, got out all their riot gear and, and, and started charging. I thought, well, I, these are people I don't want to meet. Right. So I was amazed at how fast I could go. Absolutely. And and this is the thing. I mean, I spent a little bit of time in Bosnia in the mid-90s where, where, where proper civil wars are going on. And, and we have a tendency here to slightly overstate things. And when people talk about, you know, we are being threatened by this violent mob and we are having our, ta our, our freedoms taken away. Until you've been to those places where that does actually happen and the, and the requirements and the results of it are so deadly, you know, I think we probably get a little bit carried away. Well, I think I, sometimes people say, well, what on earth, what business have you got uh, telling us your opinions? Why should anybody care about your opinions more than about anybody else's? And one of the reasons for that is that I've been out. Yes. I've been abroad. I've been into the sort of circumstances we've, we've described. And therefore, 
however stupid and, 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 and dismal I may be, I have picked up a certain amount of noise which most people don't have, and it, it's quite useful to me. It is. But still, let's look at what actually did happen, because you were quite rightly going about your business um, as one, a citizen of this nation, but also as a journalist. You went to observe um, day three or whatever it was of the Cecil Rhodes demonstration. And I've, I've, I've read with some interest uh, yesterday that they're now thinking of replacing Cecil Rhodes' statue with a statue of a black student uh, who went to uh, Oxford on a Cecil Rhodes scholarship in 1907. I, I, you know, it's, it seems to me that we've reached kind of, you know, Alice in Wonderland status here. Well, it's complicated. I mean, I, I'm, I'm not going to stand bail for Cecil Rhodes, who had a lot of things wrong with him, though many of the things that are said about him are also probably exaggerated mm. too. It's not, it's, for me, I think it's, it's, a, it's an ugly statue on an ugly building of a, of, of a complicated man who was a mixture of of, of good and bad, the good mm. mainly being the philanthropy he did later. But I, I don't want to get involved in that. I think I, I, I pretty much knew by the time I went on that demonstration that the the, the college was likely to back down because yep. that's the way the establishment is at the moment. Mm. If they're if they're threatened, they back down. It's the bizarre, almost revolutionary situation in which we are. Yes, now, in which but your presence, conservative, just goes. But your presence at that demo was what caused the the, the, the fuss, right? Well, I, I, that's one way of putting it. I had been present at the demonstration for some time. I'd followed them up from the high street round uh, into St. Aldate Street and then along a bit uh, for about, I suppose, half a mile. And I'd been chatting to some of the demonstrators, in most cases, in a perfectly friendly fashion. But they, I think they got bored because the, the route <laughs> of the march was too long. Right. And one of them, a, a guy I'd never seen before, quite older than most of them, very gaunt character, spotted me and started glaring at me. And then he started up this chant. Mm. And because we were going around corners at the time, and because the person filming me, who I don't think was a friend of mine, uh, was filming me as the, walking backwards, filming me from the front, it looks much more as if they're coming up behind me than if they than uh, the, what was actually happening, which is that I was walking on the pavement. And they were walking on the road. Mm. And it, it is, how shall I put it? It's a, it's a novel experience having people chanting your name in a hostile way quite close to you. Yeah, it must be, because it must be quite unsettling. I mean, you look, as I said, very, very insouciant uh, as you were walking. And I <laughs> oh, thought, nice you say so, well, yeah. I, I thought rather, rather stylish, actually. But I mean, um, the funny thing is, is it must, although you say you, you felt more threatened by a group of hamsters, uh, you might. Hamsters could be terrible. <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah. A gerbil on your finger if that bites you. Terrible. Yeah, goodness. Um, but, by a guinea pig is bad. Too. Yes. But I mean, it must have been unsettling, at least. Well, look, I, again, I, I have other experiences that people don't have. I, I used to go on demonstrations myself when left-wing ideas were actually a good deal less popular than they are now and when mm. we hadn't won. And we were a lot rowdier. And one of the things I, 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 I took up station, the place where I got interrogated by one of the marchers was very close to Rhodes House in Oxford, I thought, which is on the, towards the end of the, of, the, of the route of the march. I thought maybe some of them would make a break for it. And I have to say, in, in my day of demonstrating, that would almost certainly have happened. Mm. Uh, people would have. But I have a strong suspicion a lot of the marchers didn't even know that, that, that Rhodes House, which is the headquarters of the Rhodes Scholarship, was even called Rhodes House or was there. I didn't know they were because mm. they know so little about it. But these, these, these marchers were actually much more passive and flaccid than we ever were. Yeah. In my left-wing marching days, I got a quite considerable malay in, mm. in Grosvenor Square in March 1968, for instance. Uh, they were, in, at one stage, I actually noticed them going up to the police and saying, could the police help them deal with a, a drunk who was following <laughs> them around? Yeah. 
Uh, which is, you know, well, it's sort of middle class. It's very middle class. This revolution, it is middle class, it? but it's not just that. It's a, it's the establishment on parade. It's a sort of it's a sort of uh, religious procession rather mm. than a protest. Yes. And, and what these things do is they provide the pretext for the left wing people in places like Oriel College to say, well, look, there's a there's a big protest about this. We want to bring it to an end. Uh, let's let's make concessions. Mm. Same with the uh, anybody in, in in Bristol who. In, in the in official circles, who might have wanted the Colston statue to come down, uh, they, they might also have been quite glad to have the pretext of a, of, of a mob pulling it down and say, well, it's obviously got to go now. Yes. Uh, but what these things do, what these demonstrations do, is they affirm in the establishment the general moves to the left, whereas when we were doing it, we were trying to get people to become left-wing when they weren't, and that's a wholly different thing. And you were genuinely, so One of the reasons yeah. I wasn't bothered is because I, I say I've been... I, I know what demonstrators are like, and that kind of demonstration doesn't frighten me. No, sure. But I guess, I guess the next question then is, uh, when does it end? Because I've asked this to people... Uh, in fact, I had somebody on a couple of weeks ago from Black Lives Matter, and I said, when do your marches end? What is your aim? And when do you realise that you've reached your aim? And basically he said, well, we'll never reach our aim. We'll continue with this for the rest of time. But I don't agree with that, because I think the middle-class people who were following you around in Oxford have a limited attention span as a result of their upbringing, and they probably will get bored with it, um, either by the time the summer ends, because the weather won't be very nice, uh, or uh, just because they've got something better to do. Well, my theory is different from yours. I think that the government that we have now has pretty much done to itself what John Major did over the exchange rate mechanism mm. in 1992. Yeah. Uh, but people don't realise it yet because the economic consequences have yet to kick in. When they do kick in and when an awful lot of people have lost their jobs and when life has become a great deal harder for pretty much all of us, then the revenge will come. And this will actually rather illogically probably sweep into power a new Labour government headed by Keir Starmer. Who's God there, help us. All, all, well, you may say that, and, and let us hope that he will, but uh, I think it's very likely, uh, especially, as I say, once a lot of people lose their jobs and associate it with, the, with a government which has not distinguished itself. Mm. I think you'll agree. Well, I, I do agree. At this, at this moment in time, I absolutely do agree with you. I still it, maintain that... Keir Starmer, has, I have no time for him, but he's, he's, he's managed to distance himself from that. No, I think that's true, but I think it's a, it's a sort of a con trick that he's playing on everybody, which was partially exposed last Wednesday in Prime Minister's Questions when he was unable uh, to say what he thought about schools. And I can only assume that he can't say what he thinks because he's going to upset somebody. And he seems to worry about that an awful lot. But I was talking to John Rental earlier this morning, Peter, and I'd be interested in what you have to say about this. He said, we were talking about the whole U-turn business with free school meals and all of that. And he said, but it was the right thing to do. And I worry that that is now the phrase which we are being governed by. It's the right thing to do. And of course, for one person, the right thing to do is very different from what other people may think. Well, it's true. I, but what you know when you start, that, that there are some things against which you cannot argue. And, and this is what was happening in the late years again of John hmm. Major, which a lot of this reminds me of, and he with knobs on. And Blair himself was an, was an obvious, well, how should I put it, uh, obviously not very impressive. There was one occasion when he was approached by reporters to give a comment about a transport strike. Mm. And he actually, he was, so, he was so unable to answer the question, he was so afraid of either offending the unions or offending the public, that he turned around and ran away. <laughs> uh, and, and Keir Starmer was in the same position yeah. over, over, over the schools when uh, Prime Minister's questions. But it had no effect. Mm. Everybody was so sick of the major government that it yes. didn't matter. Blair could do practically anything. 
he even got away with the Formula One thing in his first months in government. He sure. could do practically anything and nobody would mind. The problem is that the, the Starmer government, when it comes into office, which I think it will, will 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 be as free as the air to do what it likes. And a lot of the things that it will do will will be to take this country much, much further to the left than it's ever been before. And all the old forces of conservatism that Blair was afraid of, probably wrongly because they were crumbling and, 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 and feeble at the time he, he came in, they won't be able to stop it. This will be, this will be new labor on speed. Well, the thing but, that I would but, say... What I'm really afraid of, the yeah. correctness, the wokeness of, of government will, will be hugely magnified. No, it will, no question. But I think one of the reasons why Tony Blair succeeded uh, in the election and got such a landslide was because not only were people fed up with John Major, they were fed up with what was being described really as old-fashioned politics. And, and when Tony Blair came in, it did seem like a breath of fresh air. It did seem like a new beginning. It almost, you know, until we found out that all those people lining the streets were actually paid to be there, you know, we actually believed it at the time that, you know, here's a young guy with young children in Downing Street and it was a kind of a Kennedy-esque renaissance wasn't it? No you speak yourself in that. <laughs> I, I, well, I'm I, talking about the mood I, of the I, nation. I, Peter. I knew that demonstration was phony as soon as I saw it. Right. I knew you couldn't get into Downing Street without official permission and I knew all those people waving Union Jacks would much rather be waving red flags anyway they'd obviously been told what to do right. and I'd known Blair since before he was famous. Uh, and I knew what manner of person he was. So, I, I, but it was useless. In my usual Cassandra role of saying, to people, "No, no, 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 honestly, please, it's all the time." Do you get tired of this? Do it. I do get tired of it because if, if if only anybody had paid attention to me, we would actually now be a lot better off. Yes. Well, Nick uh, Timothy's actually written an interesting piece. In, in the end, I, I I used to make myself unhappy by thinking, oh, "Well, if only I could have some impact." And uh, people always accuse me of standing on the sidelines, whatever they are. But I I, I really, really tried. Uh, to, to have a political impact. And I found out that most people actually aren't interested. And I now just enjoy myself uh, taking the mickey out of it all. Yes, where, where I think that's by, by far and away a more sensible yeah, I, attitude to have. But it, It's not. It's a terrible shame. I wish I could insert myself in some way into mainstream politics and have some impact. But I've tried, and I know it's not possible. So all I can do is stand by and laugh at it and, and hope that I will die before they come and throw me into prison. <laughs> yes, well, or before they stop you from actually writing well, uh, what know, you want to yeah, write. It's not, I, don't rule that, I don't rule that out. I think those days may be coming. And this is the problem. They're not, I, you know, my, my indictments have already been drawn up. I've seen them at various student occasions, the, 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 the distorted and selective quotations from my writings going back for 20 years. Right. But you know, I know what, what form my show trial will take if it ever comes. Yes. Now, I'm no fan of Nick uh, uh, Timothy, but he's written a piece in The Telegraph today saying the Conservatives can never win the culture wars while Blair and Brown's legacy remains intact. Do you think that the Blair-Brown years have kind of planted these sleepers in the culture of this country, uh, which have, are, are never going to move? I think it was a, it was a huge revolution. And people expect revolution still. They expect barricades in the streets and, and, and broken bodies, bodies lying like broken dolls in the street corner and pools of smoke hanging over the city. Uh, revolutions are not conducted like that anymore, and I think they conducted a very smooth, hugely effective revolution in, in the culture, in the establishment, in the legal system, in, in everything. And they changed the country uh, in ways which it would probably take centuries to reverse. And I think that that's, we've been through that now, and, and now comes the next stage. Yes. And, and this, and oddly enough, the thing that triggered it 
was the Johnson government's crazy decision, a beautiful, wonderfully, brilliantly written uh, and savage article in the Mail on Sunday by, by, by Jonathan Sumption yesterday, sums this up beautifully, was the, the wholly mistaken panic decision by the Johnson government to close the country down which opened the way for this. Mm. It, it, it's, it, it will, it's almost like the decision that the Tsar of all the Russias made to mobilize his army in 1914. That was the end. Uh, it was an irreversible decision which, dis, which destroyed him. And the, and the one thing which Johnson did which has brought to an end any last trace of conservatism in this country was that. So are we now destined to have a sort of rudderless government for the next four years? Because it appears well, a bit rudderless. I don't think it'll last that long. I don't think it'll last. I think, I think again, you, you mustn't underestimate the scale of the economic problems which we've imposed on ourselves. I don't think this government can last that long with once the, the, the unemployment and all the other things, that the, 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 the raids on savings and the, the increases in taxation, the falls, falls in standard of living, and the sheer misery of trying to live endlessly with these stupid rules. Once all that kicks in, I don't think this government can survive. But you see, the rules are now being... But the the rules are now being almost universally ignored, aren't they? Well, well, not... You can't if you're in the hospitality industry or if you're in a shop or if you're you're a hairdresser because you're open not just to prosecution but to lawsuits. And this is the big problem. My offices can't easily realize. Well, I take the view now that since you can now march, despite the fact that a new law was made last week which which prohibited such activity of more than six people, when the police start to say things like, you know, please stay at home, but if you feel compelled to march, um, then please try and stay safe. I mean, that, that it's anarchy to me, isn't it? Well, you'd think so, wouldn't you? But I wonder how in practice it will work. As I say, the danger comes mainly from from the lawsuit culture and the, uh, and the unwillingness of insurers mm. to insure people to do things which were previously normal. That's, yeah. Insurance is a huge problem now, thanks, thanks to Mrs. Thatcher's legalization of ambulance-chasing lawyers. But the, the other thing I have to mention is what is going to happen when this country actually leaves the European Union? I, it, it's a hugely neglected subject now. But I don't think any serious practical preparations are being made for what is almost certainly going to be a pretty rocky uh, exit uh, at the end of the year, and I, if if it goes wrong, and if then if the predictions of my old friend Crystal Booker, who now alas is not here to talk about it anymore, uh, of, of the dangers of suddenly becoming a third country become true, then add to that the mess we're already in, and I, I just see crisis. Yeah, well, you, you may well turn out to be correct, but I mean, more and more I people. I hope not. No, more and more people are certainly coming around to your way of thinking that, uh, and you hear it now more and more in the sort of mainstream conversations, uh, politically speaking, about the lockdown being too severe. But ha- let me ask you one question. I don't know whether you've got an iPhone or an Android phone, but have you checked to see whether you have had installed on your phone a COVID nineteen exposure logging app? Because I have, and it's and it's on my phone, and I didn't ask for it to be put there. Really good heavens, though, I haven't checked. Have you got Have you got an iPhone? I think it's an iPhone. I pay so little attention to it, I don't really know what it is. All right, is. well, if you go uh, into it, the it, settings it, and you go into the privacy settings and you go into the health settings after that, if it's there, you will see it. Settings, privacy, health, well, I'll look. Yeah. You don't want me to do it now on air, do you? Well, you can uh, if you want, but I mean... Uh, knowing, my, knowing my phone confidence, we <laughs> probably just hear me going... Oh, no, but I mean, it's quite... I mean, even... Flatter of the thing falling to the ground. Let's do it later. But, but it's a very worrying... Um, and I've, I've got... Lots of people... 
Settings, privacy, health. Yes. That order. That order, yeah, if it's an iPhone. I'm not sure if it's an Android. I'm not sure what you do. But, I mean, that to me... My, my phone has been in North Korea. It's got all kinds of funny things. OK. Well, I mean, that to me is something you would that would happen to you in North Korea. You'd suddenly walk around and go, oh, look, the government's tracking me. Now, as you and I have said before, I've been tracked, I'm sure, by, by Facebook and Google and all sorts of other people. So oh, yeah. I'm not that bothered about it, but I'm slightly more concerned when the government's doing it. Yeah, I, but again, if you're—it's another thing of, about living in Moscow. You got so used to it. Yeah, they, they put microphones everywhere that it became you, either you went mad or you started laughing at it. <laughs> and and I, I can't. Uh, I, I can only laugh. And given the general incompetence of almost all government IT projects, I still think the the, the danger from Google and Facebook is probably mm. bigger. Now, if you think that this is all going to come crashing down around Boris Johnson's ears, are you telling me that you think there will be? there will have to be an election before the term of government is up then? I think it's highly possible. Uh, but it, one can't predict the nature of the crisis. I mean, he would have to lose a massive amount of support in his own party, wouldn't he, for that to happen? Yes, he would. That's what happens, though, isn't it? I mean, it, I, again, I'm, I, one recalls the, the, the crises of John Major, who effectively handed over the government, as far as I could ever see, to Michael Heseltine at one point, so he was staying in office, but who, whose final years in office after the ERM were as a ghost. Yeah. Uh, not really, and uh, fundamentally keeping Downing Street warm for uh, for, for, for Blair. Uh, but on this occasion, I think that it, it, it's 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 going to be bad. I mean, it's 1931 we're talking about in terms of the economic uh, shock. Hmm. Which is coming, and remember what that did for Ramsay Macdonald. Yes, but uh, there again, as I've said for, before, for the Labour Party, and because they had the the great misfortune to be in power when it happened, and they, it, it took them a very long time to recover. But I think the the other thing which I will still cling on to until such time as it's ripped from my grip uh, is the fact that they can't allow the economy to collapse completely. The rest of the world is in the same boat, more or less, and and it may well be that some will not be as badly affected as our economy, but most of them are. Most people who who rely on terror on um, tourism have got absolutely no tourism going on at all and and the government and the world's economy cannot afford to be allowed to collapse i don't think so that's kind of what i'm hoping will will end up as the case well i hope you're right but here's the problem i mean our, our economy is in in many important ways worse than those of, of many other advanced economies we go on about it being the sixth or seventh largest in the world but in fact judged by gross domestic product per head it's much further down it's more like 26 from memory uh, and, and then we have very heavy levels, both of personal debt and, and public debt. Uh, we don't make very much, which is very important if you need to recover from a crisis. The manufacturing is usually the, the, the way by which this is done. We rely terribly heavily on the very service industries which we have closed down. And I think if you were sort of looking at a league table of, of the vulnerable economies of, of Europe, ours would be very, we don't even have what well, even the Russians have, which is a very big oil and gas reserve to fall back on, all that's dying out now. We, we, haven't, we, we used to have that huge advantage, and it's gone. And I think that it, 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 we could do worse than an awful lot of countries in, in, this, in this time that is coming because of those weaknesses and because of our very, very long, long years of very bad export performance as well, so that our current account deficit is, is, is shockingly bad. I'm I'm not sure about that, and even and the thing is, that you, sure you can be rescued, but you, you can be rescued to a point which most of us would still pretty much think of as far far worse than the way we live now. Well, we shall see. Unfortunately, we're out of time again, Peter. But delightful to talk to you once more. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. We'll talk to you next Monday. We'll see where we are then. We could well be uh, very close to having a pint together. You never know. Uh, somewhere near Kensington, or not a million miles from there. Uh, this is the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Talk Radio.
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Mid-mornings with Mike Graham. Talk radio. So stories on the front page of most of the papers today. The Times says pubs, bars and restaurants will have to take the names and contact details of customers before they are allowed in plans being drawn up for the next stage of lifting Britain's lockdown. Now, uh, that sounds complicated, but I guess it might not be quite as complicated as you think, depending upon whether the pub is a local or whether the pub is actually a busy pub in, say, the centre of a city. Let's talk, though, now to Ian Cass, Managing Director of Forum of British Pubs, to see uh, what he makes of it all. Ian, a very good afternoon to you. Welcome. Thank you very much, Mike. Nice to speak to you. Yeah, well, nice to speak to you on the occasion of some good news as well, because uh, you must have been champing at the bits for some time to try and get your businesses back open again. Um, How important uh, is this manoeuvre by the government and and will it work? Um, I mean, yes, we all all want the pubs to to reopen and, and most of our members at the former British pubs feel that way. But... There's a few difficulties with it, um, as you would expect, Mike. First of all, we're being, the, the 4th of July is being mentioned as an opening date, but that's not official. Nobody's confirming that at Bayes or government. They say maybe we'd like to do it, but we're not sure. Um, the pubs themselves, you mentioned it earlier, it depends on the size of your pub, whether mm. you, how, how easy it's going to be to reopen. If you're a tiny little pub with no beer garden in a city centre with a couple of small rooms, and you compare that to one of the larger operations, you know, really big pub. Yeah. And there's supposed to be a set of guidelines that were coming out on the 13th of June. Well, nobody's seen those guidelines yet from the hospitality industry. So how do we know that we can open safely? How do you do a risk assessment if you haven't got the guidelines? And then, of course, you've got the pub companies who are very, very keen to reopen, mainly because it means they can start taking rent again. Mm. Um, And so they're ringing publicans at the moment, telling them that they need to be placing orders. There's a few companies at the moment. I spoke to a landlord this morning. He's been told he needs to place his order by tomorrow, um, and the order will could be with him on Thursday. Right. So it, it's a it, it's a bit of a shambles at the moment. To, to be fair, Mike. Um, um, you surprise me, Ian. I mean, uh, <laughs> surely not a shambles, heaven's sake. But I mean, what about the practicalities of things like an app? Uh, the practicalities of oh. taking lists of names. I mean, again, as I said, I suppose it depends on the sort of pub you're talking about. I mean, absolutely. Um, you know, again, taking lists of names. Well, who's going to be doing that and how are they going to do it and how many are you dealing with? Again, depends on the size of of, of the individual business. Um, I don't know about you, but, you know, we're in, we're in rural, we're based in rural Cheshire. Mm. Um, and there's a number of the pubs around here, you'd, you'd struggle to get um, any Wi-Fi signal anywhere near those pubs. So how's an app going to work? You'd be sitting in the beer garden waiting for your beer for an awful long time <laughs> if that was the case. Right. Yeah, interesting stuff, isn't it? And and also weekly saliva checks are being mentioned uh, in the paper here, which doesn't sound very pleasant to me. I don't know who's going to be taking my saliva uh, or who I'm supposed to give it to. 
Well, I mean, we're supposed to be if the hospitality industry, a social experience, and 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 if you ruin that, I mean, there's going to be a question about who's going to go to the pubs anyway. The idea that you know they, they shut everything down at the click of a switch, and, and we were closed down on the twentieth. This gradual reopening, but there's going to be a lot of pubs that can't reopen viably you know those that rely on maybe a lot of pensioners and vulnerable people going in at lunchtime mm. if they're still protecting themselves they're not exactly going to be rushing to the pub so f- for me it, you know every individual every publican will know whether he can open his pub first of all safely and it's got to be safe for his staff and his customers and then there's the, also the question, if you put whatever guidelines we're going to get and we're not seeing them yet, is it going to be economically viable to open your pub? If, if putting all the safety measures in place, you can only get five people through the door, I'm, I'm afraid you, you, you know, you'd be better not opening at all rather than operating at a loss. So until we know what the guidelines we're working at, and I know, again, you mentioned earlier this two-metre to one-metre rule, um, one of the suspicions is that they've taken the time in getting this guidance out because they've been deciding what to do with that. But that one metre change could make a, a huge difference to a pub who's trying to plan for reopening. If it's two metres, they can't do it safely and, and, and economically viably. One metre, it might be possible. So we need that information and nobody's got it if we are going to open on the 4th of July, that's getting awfully close mm. to put a lot of those things in place, Mike. Yes, well, we're hearing, um, and very strong hints anyway, coming out of Downing Street, that tomorrow will be the day that that announcement is made, that two metres goes down to one metre, um, and then presumably an awful lot of things will happen. We had a, a restaurateur on the show last Friday, James Chiaverini from Il Portico in London, who basically said, look, we can't afford to wait around anymore. We're going to open on July the 4th no matter what. Uh, we're making preparations now. We're getting people in to, to do the work. When we're going to order food in. you know, So there is a certain frustration, I think, out there, isn't there, in the hospitality business? Absolutely. And, you know, you, you, you talked about what you, you know, what you'd seen or heard of in London and mm. people buying takeaway drinks and gathering. You know, it, it's happening all over the place. You know, we're in a little town called Nutsford. Lots of people gathering, buying takeaway drinks, you know, trays of four pints, yeah. sitting in an, an area. I'm not sure whether they were family groups, but I, I, I suspect social distancing wasn't part of this. If you bring alcohol into the equation anyway, people's inhibitions and maybe you behave in a different way. Um, it's it's extremely difficult to put absolutes on what you can do, but I hope whatever happens tomorrow, they're going to get this guidance out to publicans as quickly as possible so that they can make an informed decision about whether it's safe and viable to open that, that pub. Because without that... We're all, we're all guessing. Yeah. We're, we're, we're all guessing at what could happen. And also, how important is it for pubs to be able to provide food? Because I've been told, I'm pretty sure in the past by by publicans, that the margins on drink and on alcohol are not great and they don't make a great deal of money on actually selling the booze. But where they do make the money is on selling the food. And obviously, that's a very different conversation, isn't it? It, it is. I mean, it depends on, I mean, the other thing is we've talked about size as, as making a difference. It also depends on the ownership of the pub. Are mm. you a free trade pub where, you know, you own the whole operation and it's yours? 
or are you a tenant to a big pub company where you're paying a margin on pretty much everything that you buy, including the food, to, to that pub company? So your margins are very tight. And I, I think it's very different. I mean, this is a personal opinion, but unless it's a one-person kitchen, how do you, how do you socially distance mm. in a kitchen where you're moving around, preparing food, passing it to people to take out? That whole food operation is going to be a nightmare in its own right. And if you, you know, an awful lot of pubs, as you say, rely on not just the wet sales, the drink that's going through, mm. but the food as well. And if you can't effectively serve food in a safe manner, that's going to be a huge issue as well. Sure. And without wishing to become slightly obsessed about it, I mean, one of the people, one of the things that people moan about a lot at the moment is that you can go and get a takeaway drink from a pub, sit in a park, but there's no toilets open. No, no, ab- ab- absolutely. And they wonder about, about the problem. I mean, taking it a little bit broader, I've, you know, I've got a friend who's a policeman in Manchester and they've been dealing with these huge informal, if you, well, informal, informal gatherings of people, you know, they're getting together. Right. They want to be out socialised. It's one thing policing the pubs, but, you know, a load of people meeting in a park you know, 100 plus people and how do they deal with that? So there's a load of problems mm. as well that people do seem a bit sick of it. They do right. want to get out and get together and meet friends. They're doing it regardless. And we're getting some, you know, some quite nasty situations where there's been, you know, is- issues around those gatherings. So it, 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 is a, it is quite a wide issue, not just the pubs themselves. Yes. Personally, I'd like to see the, the pubs open in a safe manner. Mm. I think that's absolutely right because there is a certain kind of, um, cavalier attitude out there at the moment where people, I mean, the one thing that the Brits are always going to be doing is drinking. You know, no matter where you find a group of British people, they're usually clutching a pint of beer. And, you know, looking at some of the pictures uh, from yesterday uh, and, and Saturday, uh, there's pictures here from the Waterman's Arms down in Barnes, right on the river, uh, which I know well. There's literally dozens of people, and they're all just standing next to each other by the river, drinking the, the, the booze that they've bought in the pub. And, I mean, it's it's as if it's a normal Sunday to me in the summer yeah there's a there's a there's a big managed house up near us and the front of it was just full of people yesterday and i thought god they've reopened yeah wasn't they were buying takeaway drink from a place up the road buying the point and sitting in the outside area outside the pub but if you're looking you know from where i was you thought the pub was open yeah uh, the number of people that were gathering there drinking so yeah without that guidance we're all a bit and the sooner we've got that, we can start talking to publicans about how they can open in a safe manner. But with, with, without that, we, re- we really do have a problem. Yeah. Final question, Ian. I've got a tweet here from someone who says, um, lots of people interested in when pubs are going to reopen, but since 2001, the number of pubs in this country has actually halved. According to a report in The Telegraph last year, there were 14 pubs a day closing. So, I mean, this situation can't be helping that uh, problem overall. No, the, 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 the pub industry's got a lot of problems and that's probably the subject for, for another another programme maybe yeah. at some stage. But yeah, the, you know, pubs have been under pressure. The, the, the point that I mentioned about big pub, big pub companies taking an awful lot of money out and, and not leaving the tenants with a lot um, does, does cause issues. We have seen a bit of a bounce back in terms of the pubs, but I would argue that there's nothing wrong with the traditional British pub model. There is something wrong with the way some of these larger companies operate them. Um, 
And this isn't going to help matters. This will make it worse. The industry needs all the help it can get at the moment. And that means government needs to listen, Mike, not to, you know, us as representative organisations do a job, but government needs to get a lot closer to the tenants and the publicans themselves and find out what's really going on out there. And that's what's missing at the moment. Hmm. Um, they really don't have a grasp on the situation or what's going on, in my opinion. OK, we'll try and get them to listen a bit more, Ian. Thanks very much indeed. Ian Cass there, uh, Managing Director of Forum of British Pubs, saying more information required, please. Timings need to be uh, given out. The government has to be specific. We are being told um, fairly, I would say, um, determinedly uh, that Tuesday will be the day that Boris Johnson announces that social distancing is down uh, to one metre, which will help an awful lot of pubs, of course, uh, in their preparations to reopen. And But they also need to know whether July the 4th is in fact a day that they can hang their hats on and that they can say that's the day we can open because that is clearly uh, what the pub business actually needs as well. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Let's go now to our homeschooling section because this is what we do every day at 12.30, just after the news, uh, as we learn something new and we try and bring you some information. So if your children are still home, they're not back at school and you're wondering what to teach them today, here's your opportunity to get them to gather around the radio, get them to gather around the TV, uh, if necessary, if you're watching it on YouTube, because Dara Patel is with us, Astronomy Education Officer at the Royal Museum's Greenwich. Dara, a very good uh, afternoon to you. Thanks for joining us. And you, it's nice to be here. Yeah, well, now, uh, the question we have for you is, why is the sky blue? But I thought, rather than going straight in on that, why don't we first of all discuss what the sky actually is? Absolutely. Um, and I think you're right, uh, without uh, going straight into why is the sky blue, we need to know a bit more about our atmosphere and also about light. Um, so our atmosphere is the uh, essentially the layer of air that surrounds our planet. So it's made up of different gases, different molecules, and our planet is quite unique in the atmosphere that it has. There are some planets that don't have much of an atmosphere at all. And then there are the gas giant planets, which have very, very thick gas atmospheres. And so the, the, the sort of the, 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 the colour and the shade uh, of the sky, um, you're going to explain in a moment. But in terms of, say, the atmosphere as it works, because one of the things that I struggle with is that the speed with which the Earth revolves um, when I, when I, whenever I'm told the speed at which we're revolving, it kind of blows my mind. And I look at the sky for sort of any sign of movement and I don't see any. Well, it's a bit uh, of a funny one in the sense that you're absolutely right. We are moving very, very quickly, not only spinning on the Earth's axis, but also orbiting around our sun. Now, one of the reasons that we, we don't necessarily uh, feel the motion of the Earth is because we're on it and we're spinning at the same rate that the Earth is spinning. So it's only to an outsider where you would really, really notice uh, the changes of the moving out. Yes, indeed. And it's only really, I suppose, when you see some of the footage that we see from, from the, either the space station uh, or um, something that is in space firing back a, 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 a photograph back down to us that you can actually see the Earth for what it really is. And it's lovely. You're absolutely right that we have you know, the ability to send uh, spacecraft into space. We've got astronauts on board the International Space Station, like you mentioned, and they are, they're taking images of the Earth. It's giving us a new perspective of our planet, which we didn't have 50, 60, 70 years ago. Right, exactly right. And so let's talk about the sky itself. I mean, I'm looking out now, uh, a beautiful sort of landscape of London, not far from you in Greenwich. We're looking at, basically our office is overlooking the Thames at Tower Bridge. We can see the Tower of London. I can see a few wispy clouds in the sky, but by and large, um, the, the, the sort of the top part of the sky that I can see is, is a darker blue 
than the bottom half, which is kind of coming down to the horizon, which is a lighter blue. So why is that, for example? Um, well, let's start off perhaps with why the sky is blue generally. Mm. Um, and it's a combination of the idea that we have an atmosphere, but also the idea of what light can do. So we might be familiar with the fact that light can be reflected. So planets don't give out their own light, but we can see planets in the sky because they're reflecting the sun's light back to us. But light doesn't just reflect, light can be absorbed. So different colors, uh, for example, something that appears black, it's absorbing all the light and not giving any back out. And that's why it appears dark, it appears black. But one of the things that light can do is it can be scattered. What that essentially means is that when light interacts with an object, uh, typically a very, very small object, it can be redirected. And so that light sort of gets scattered or bounced back in all directions of the sky. Now we talked about our atmosphere and it's made of gases and it's made of these small molecules. And what's happening is the sun's light is colliding with those molecules in the air and it's being scattered by those molecules. And what happens is because blue light is of a shorter wavelength, blue light actually gets scattered a lot. So we find blue light being redirected all over our sky. Whereas the longer wavelength red light and orange light, it doesn't tend to get scattered as much. And that means that we don't see it being redirected all over our sky. So that's essentially why our sky appears blue. Um, living in London isn't necessarily always the best thing when it comes to having clear skies. And I think part of the reason we have that more hazy color around the horizon is because of a lot of the pollution that we have in our cities. Mm. Okay, and as far as the, um, uh, the the different colours that you can make see the sky, I mean, like at sunrise, for example, it can often be very red, uh, or it can be orange. It can blaze uh, in all manner of different shades of that. Similarly, with uh, with sunset, uh, how come the blue doesn't kind of remain? I know sometimes it does. I mean, some of the most lovely, beautiful skies I've seen is where it's blue at the top, and then at the bottom where the sun is, it becomes kind of red and orange, and it's really quite amazing. We're, we're so lucky, aren't we, when mm. we get these beautiful skies to look at. Uh, but it's actually the same thing happening. It's the idea that light is being scattered. Now, during the day, what we find is the sun is usually much higher in the sky. And so that sunlight is traveling right down through the atmosphere. And as I mentioned, blue light gets scattered off in most directions, red light less so. Right. But when we get to sunrise and sunset, what's happening is that the sun is much lower in the sky. And what that means is that the sun's light has to travel more through the atmosphere. It's traveling through more of those molecules and those gases in our atmosphere. So blue light, you're right, still gets scattered off in all directions. But as we look towards the direction of the sun, we see the light which is not scattered as much. And remember, that's the red light and the orange light. So sometimes we see the blue skies a bit further up. But actually, when you're looking towards the sun at sunrise or sunset, you see more of those lovely oranges and red colors. Yeah. And when you see the northern lights, which I haven't really seen in their full glory, but I've seen little sort of bits of them up in northern Scotland, not quite uh, as good as, as, as you would expect if you were in uh, Iceland or, or wherever you normally would go to see them. Um, what is that all about? I mean, I, I, can you explain that phenomena just in terms of the light? Absolutely. So another one of the glorious light shows that we have on the Earth. This time it's an effect of our atmosphere, but actually our sun's uh, kind of charged particles rather than necessarily its light. So our sun is a very dynamic place and our sun blows off this solar wind. It's full of these charged particles, which then travel through our solar system. Now those charged particles are affected by the Earth's magnetic field, just like when you've got a magnetic object and it's attracted to a magnet. And what that means is those charged particles from the sun are actually directed to the magnetic poles of the Earth, the North Pole and the South Pole. 
And when those charged particles knock into the uh, molecules and the gases in our atmosphere, they give those gases uh, energy. Now those gases don't like to be very energized and so they give away that energy by emitting light. Mm. And the reason we see our Rory appearing more of the greeny colors is due to the gases that we have in our atmosphere. And that green color is typical of oxygen in our atmosphere. Okay, so it's quite a fascinating situation, isn't it? What about when you're in a plane um, and you can sometimes see if you're high enough up? The people in Concord used to say they could always see it. I've been in planes now which fly at sort of 50,000 feet and you can see uh, the curvature of the Earth and that can sometimes change the the sky's colour to almost a white rather than a blue. Um, For someone who's never been high enough above the atmosphere to experience that for myself, I think a part of that is... um, you know, your perspective on the Earth, you're so much higher above the Earth's atmosphere that you're not getting that scattering effect as much. You've got to have a, a very thick atmosphere to be able to have um, that light scattered. So when you're much further above the thicker part of the atmosphere, you're not going to get so much of that scattering. And instead, what you're probably looking at uh, are the cloudier parts of our sky. Now, can I ask you a very unscientific question, which is, you know, when they say a red sky at night is a shepherd's delight, is there any truth to that? Well, I'm not (laughs) sure about this. We have lots of astronomical sayings, including once in a blue moon. Now, we know that our moon doesn't actually turn blue, um, but it's lovely that we've got uh, these sayings to to keep us going. Yes, well, we do. Now we have blue moons, we have red moons, we have uh, harvest moons, we have more different types of moons than I ever knew when I was growing up. Well, a lot of these moons, like we say, we're giving them names. So lots of the the full moons of each month are given a name. So I think the the June one is perhaps the strawberry moon. It might be the July one. Uh, And it's all about, um, you know, people in the past, different cultures uh, relating seasonal changes with the full moons of the different months. Mm. Uh, We do have red moons or blood moons. And actually, if anyone is able to view a lunar eclipse, uh, the the moon will appear red then. Um, But blue moons, as I mentioned, the moon doesn't actually turn blue at any point. Uh, Although if we do get our our telescopes to take um, kind of uh, long exposure photographs of the moon, we can build up some of the color in the moon. The moon does appear gray white, but actually it's got deposits of iron oxide, which shows up as kind of an orangey color. Mm. And it's also got titanium on its surface, which gives it that kind of bluish hue. But you do need to capture lots and lots of light from the moon to be able to see those colors. And if your children want to be involved in a sort of astronomical um, viewing, if you want to sort of get a telescope, there are relatives. I mean, I've been involved in this with some of my children. You know, they want a telescope at some point or other in their life, and you buy them one, um, and then they they use it for a while. But I mean, you can now relatively cheaply get a telescope that you can see some quite cool stuff, right? Absolutely. So there are smaller telescopes you can get your hand on. But um, as someone who kind of got into astronomical observing a little later, I would always suggest starting off progressively. So go out and use your eyes. You Mm. can see the moon, but you can also see planets with your eyes. They don't look like much. They look like points of light in the sky. But being able to familiarize yourself first with what sorts of things you find in the sky really helpful. And then even before getting a telescope, grab yourself a pair of binoculars. They still give you a nice wide field of view, so you can actually see a lot more of the sky than you can see through a telescope. But again, you get some of that magnification to start bringing out some of the objects which are much further away. Okay. And one final question. You may not be uh, able to know the answer to this one, but any news on when museums might be opening up again? Because obviously I know it's a government decision, but I just wondered what you might be hearing. 
Uh, so I think our number one safe uh, concern with, uh, you know, along with everyone is the safety of people who are coming to visit and the safety of the staff. We've not got any uh, fixed uh, date in mind yet, but we are looking to progressively start uh, reopening our sites. So hopefully in the coming month or so, we might be able to start that procedure. But of course, we want to make sure that it is as safe as possible for everyone. Of course. Well, Dara, thank you very much for joining us. Very interesting. Fascinating, in fact, I would say. Anything to do with astronomy to me uh, is absolutely fascinating. Dara Patel, astronomy education officer at the Royal Museums of Greenwich and who knows it may well be certainly before the end of the summer that you can go back to the museums and look at them and do all sorts of great stuff because uh, that is what is great fun of course to do with the children uh, during the summer holidays and hopefully uh, we'll get back to that relatively soon. Talk radio across the UK online on DAB and on your smart speaker the independent republic of Mike Graham on talk radio If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.